Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Food tells a story. And so every weekend, we continue our celebration of food and the role it plays in our lives. I thank you for joining me this week. We're exploring everything we love about the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, and the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. I'm all about delicious dishes and righteous recipes, food pros and decadent tastes. And so this is a place for people who love to cook or love to eat. It is my goal to satiate your appetite. And we talk food and health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, travel, tech, fitness, and more, all to fuel your hunger. So please stay tuned because there is so much delicious conversation in your radio throughout this hour. If you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And be sure to tell a friend. I am 20 years of celebrations on the radio and nationally syndicated, in fact, in almost 100 cities across the U.S. and Canada. You can find a syndication list at chefjamie.com so you can listen with a buddy and compare notes. I hope that my website at chefjamie.com will make you a better cook as well. And please do follow on social at Chef Jamie Gwen because there's just shameless cheesy pastas and <laughs> gluttonous daily addictions. And I'm all for it. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, I think we should dig in, don't you? Now, before summer is over, there is one thing that you need to do. And you might have done it already this summer, but you should have at it again. There is nothing like a summer picnic of fried chicken, and it might be the most perfect food feast for family and friends. Now, a picnic might mean your backyard or your al fresco patio, or maybe just the kitchen table with the sliding glass door wide open. But let's talk fried chicken for a moment, can we? Because there is quintessentially something beautiful about all-American fried chicken, but it's come a long way. Now, the one thing that all great fried chicken has in common is the crispy, delicious crust and the moist, tender chicken. It's the dichotomy, right, that really gets you. You crunch through with your teeth and then you sink into the goodness. And at the heart of it all, there is a process as to how to get the chicken just that way. And... More surprisingly than not, the brine has elevated over the years to better fried chicken, at least in my culinary opinion. So this is a chef's perspective. Now, my mom makes the best fried chicken ever, and I, I succumb to her, <laughs> really. Actually, I beg her to make it. Uh, but truth be told, I've spent a lot of time making fried chicken and I have a classic old-fashioned fried chicken recipe that I love. It's a process, by the way, uh, as all great fried chicken is, but I have recently added to the process because it's worth it. 
And if you have a tasty jar of pickles in your fridge, well, then you are in luck. You do not pour the leftover juice down the drain when you eat the last pickle. Instead, you save it and use it. Yes, pickle juice, aka brine, is a mixture of water and salt and spices, right? And some of the fancier varieties of pickles might have garlic or pickled hot peppers or horseradish, but the pickle juice is especially scrumptious in lots and lots of dishes like fried chicken and in cocktails. Yes, you heard it right. It might sound odd, um, but it's actually the key ingredient for the perfect Bloody Mary. Uh, And it's not so bad in a dirty martini, but you want to taste the brine first so that you know what flavors you're introducing to the mix, right? And I always strain the pickle brine before I use it. Now, here's my best tip when it comes to pickle, pickle brine. You're not always about to attempt the best batch of fried chicken ever when you come to the end of a jar of pickles or when you come to the end of the jar of pickles, it's not Bloody Mary morning. So I suggest that you freeze the brine in an ice cube tray, and then you can always use it at a later date, right? Now, the ultimate fried chicken, back to the subject at hand, is, in my opinion, always brined. And I used to do a saltwater brine like everybody else, and uh, I would season it generously, and it was similar to a turkey brine, let's say, but I find a pickle brine so much easier and so much more fantastically flavored. Now, my ultimate fried chicken is not only brined, it's soaked in the second part of the process in buttermilk, and then it is coated in seasoned flour and fried in canola oil. Now, to get that, cri- that crispy, perfectly crunchy skin that we all love so much, uh, you need a few cardinal rules, or as I call them, chef's tips. Um, so listen here. Pickle brine is first, then a buttermilk soak. I like the salt infusion from the brine and the tenderness that comes from the buttermilk soak. And the tang, by the way, too, from the buttermilk. So you have to do the work to get the best result. And it's not like you're making fried chicken every night. It's a party thing, right? Like you invite your best friends or your best neighbors and you celebrate with fried chicken. So to guarantee perfectly crispy fried chicken, I'm actually beginning to drool, which means hopefully I'm doing my job and I've made you hungry. Here is how you go about fried chicken. You rinse and dry your chicken with a paper towel, dry with a paper towel, that is, before you do anything. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the sticky residual moisture that's left on the skin of chicken, that kind of moisture actually does not absorb all the goodness that we are about to bathe it in. And if you're going, by the way, shortcut, directly from package to flour, let's say, maybe that's your family heirloom recipe, you will not get crispy coating. It will get soggy. So please rinse and pat dry the chicken pieces. Now, when you get to coating your chicken with flour few steps down in the process, right? You got to really pack it on there because the extra flour turns into crispy goodness in a hot fryer. And some great cooks double dip, but I find that a bit too heavy. Now, flour your chicken just as the oil is getting to temperature. 
you do not want your coated chicken parts sitting around because the flour soaks up the moisture from the meat. You need just enough flour to fit in your cast iron skillet or your fryer, and then you're ready to start the next batch. And I really do believe that you should fry your bird pieces at a high temperature. And I'm talking 380 degrees. It will fry faster and the outside will be crispier for it. And to keep that temperature up, you don't want it to dip below 340 the entire time the chicken is there. You can only do a few pieces at a time, which means multiple pans or patience. Now, here's another great chef's tip. When you lower the chicken pieces into the hot oil, submerge them halfway beneath the surface and count to five. One should not do this with their hands. Of course, one should do this with a good sturdy pair of tongs. And once you are suspending that piece of chicken beneath the surface of the oil, you count to five before you lower it the rest of the way. Why? Because it prevents that flat, soggy spot from developing where the chicken sits in contact with the pan. And again, please don't overcrowd. And lastly, please, and I beg you, please, cool your fried chicken on a rack, not on a plate. A rack on a cookie sheet, a rack on the counter, whatever it is, allow the air to circulate around it because the chicken in contact with a hard surface causes condensation, which causes soggy skin, and you didn't go through that whole process. Not to have perfect, crispy, juicy fried chicken. Now, my best recipe is posted at chefjamie.com. You can always email me directly, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com, and I will gladly send it to you. But cheers to fried chicken and the end of summer. All right, coming up, there is so much more insightful conversation. Alexandra Crapanzano, and she shares the secrets of the cakes that Parisians make at home in its many splendors. Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio, grab a snack, come on back. There is lots more fabulous food, especially on the sweet side, to satiate your sweet tooth right after this. and divine. It's food and wine. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Talk about inspiration. I am over the moon to share with you James Beard award-winning writer Alexandra Crapanzano, who has written a dessert column for the Wall Street Journal for close to a dozen years now. You know her and you love her. And she's sharing the secrets and debunking the myths of the cakes that Parisians bake at home, the gâteau, in its many splendors and by demand. You see, we all want to bake like Alexandra, from the simplest yogurt cakes to deceptively easy bouche de Noël, from the nut torts to the boozy flourless chocolate cakes, from yuzu madeleines to rum-soaked babas. And now you can. Set to release, Gateau, the surprisingly simple 
the surprising simplicity of French cakes, rather, is Alexandra's third published prose. And it gets to the essence of Parisian home baking. The simple, delicious, sweet and savory cakes that are served to family and friends in Paris. Is there anything better? She's teaching us how to master the art. And I am delighted to have you on the show. Welcome, Alexandra. My pleasure. Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) Yes, of course. Um, Your writing is exquisite. Um, I I know of you and your work and have always been very admiring. But I went to bed with your book and I woke up with it. And I have to tell you, I snuck out of my bedroom quietly so as not to wake the baby um, to put butter out for the night. So needless to say... um, you're, you've done your due diligence in inspiring all of us, um, but the, the book is exquisite. I mean, your writing has always been very revered and the stories woven through are delightful, um, but kudos to you. This is a, a beautiful work of art. My goodness, thank you. And you are a woman after my own heart. If you got out of bed to put the butter on, <laughs> yeah. I absolutely love that. I have I have done that many a time, but 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 more because I realized I had to than, than out of sudden inspiration. Um, <laughs> thank you. You know this this book really was in so many ways my most personal. I I moved to France when I was moved to Paris when I was ten, and uh, my mother had always been a you know a, a great cook, and I had traveled all through Europe, um, being the daughter of a journalist uh, throughout my childhood. But but really moving to Paris was seminal for me. And I lived in a neighborhood that had great patisseries and great mm. boulangeries. And I was down the street from from the, uh, from the Apollonia Poilin's um, wonderful place, Poilin, mm. then, then belonging to her parents, uh, and, uh, and really, really fell in love with French cooking in a, in a much more serious way and also just made friends who have remained uh, true friends over these many decades. Isn't that extraordinary? And, and as much as the style has changed, and I know that the trend right now in Paris is a, a sort of fresh approach, there's something beautiful. I read your introduction three times because the stories woven through felt so rich to me. You speak Thank about you. the Parisian way, this French savoir-faire, and I would love to you for you to em- embellish that, right? Because they always end with something sweet, but it's effortless. It is, and you know, for for a while, I you know, I I thought just like it, almost everybody thinks. Wait a second, you know, it's got to be some innate genetic superpower that makes everything look so easy. You know, you're born knowing how to tie a silk scarf and how to whip up a cake and throw a dinner party at the last minute. And, you know, and then when I really started eating in other people's houses, and even more so, once I kind of hit my 20s and 30s and was with Parisian friends at home who had young kids and had jobs and were coming home and still whipping stuff up, uh, I really began to spend more time in the kitchen with them, and I I realized that 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 kind of Parisian know-how is really across the board. So you know, you the French are very practical. So maybe you have two great silk scarves, and you just know how to tie them so well that you can you can make any outfit look splendid very easily. And the same is kind of true with with cooking, which is if you know the basic, say, twelve cakes. Um, and you learn those really young. Some of them, like the yogurt cake and the, and the four-fourths pound cake you learn in kindergarten. Then you can riff on them all of your life. And, and because you know them, they're really back pocket 
recipes are almost like muscle memory. Yes. Um, you know, you can you can you can put them together with ease while you're chatting, while you're having a glass of wine with friends, hmm. and it really does look effortless because it is second nature by that point. And it and it also what I love about it is it frees you up to to riff on it. You know. Yes. So now yuzu juice is all the rage, and, and so people are adding yuzu juice to fantastic classic recipes that have been around since the Middle Ages. See, and I love um, that. So I, I love that it becomes your own signature style, right? Like th- there is a Parisian woman somewhere who makes a pistachio pound cake because she's always added pistachios, right? That's her signature exactly. per se. And you speak about that in the introduction that the French are steeped in culinary history and that these recipes that you share date back some of them hundreds of years only to be improved upon in the simplest of ways, Exactly. And, you know, I've even looked at some recipes. There's a recipe um, that comes from a, a, a convent in the 12th century. It's for les nonettes, which is a kind of mm. spice, little spice muffins that are filled with jam. And, and that recipe really is, you know, 800 years old. And what's, what's great about it, of course, now is, you know, we have silicon muffin tins and we have stand mixers and convection ovens. Yes. And, you know, and we don't necessarily have to beat the eggs so much that they are the only source of leavening. We can throw in a little baking powder, um, and we don't have to go off and make our own jam. It's going to be in the fridge anyway. So, so there's, so it's things have gotten simpler and easier in certain ways, but um, but the actual recipe is really, really, truly similar yes. to to what it was. And I think for the you know the French are so immediately connected to their history um, in ways that I I often forget as an American, which isn't to say that we're not, but our history is, you know, is in some ways less, it's it's less long, it's shorter, right? And, um, and at least visibly. And so when you, when you go to France and you're in a small town and there is a cathedral um, and there are pastry shops that have been around for hundreds of years, you were really reminded that, Mm that there is a way that things have been done that's a source of extraordinary national pride. Yes. And, um, oh, for sure. And I think the French really, they find comfort in the classics. Uh, and I think they're, particularly at home, they're less about that wow factor and more about things that are really well made. And, and I love that it's about that comfort in every aspect of life, right? The scarf might be... Um, might be tied just perfectly, but it is a, a a comfortable wear it all day, look chic until midnight, right? I mean, that's really exactly you talk about it looks easy because it is easy. I love that. What a what an absolutely aspiring way to approach gateau, Alexandra. You are no doubt stimulating my sweet tooth. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, James Beard, award-winning writer and Wall Street Journal dessert columnist Alexandra Crapanzano is here. And oh, we are relishing in gateau. Don't go away.
Welcome back. Oh, we are digging into the beauty of gâteau, the surprising simplicity of French cakes, and the cookbook set to release from Alexandra Crapanzano. Before we get to the yogurt cake, Alexandra, because I, I would like to learn how, and I'm not in kindergarten, um, but, but I'd like to go back some days, really. Um, can we talk about the fact that we love the French for many reasons, one of which they're boozy? You start the book off with the spirits section, and I love that it's with reckless abandon that you say, at a splash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, I, I have to say my publisher just had a big laugh when I turned in this book because, you know, most people maybe recommend two spirits and I, I don't know how many I have, but I had to, I had to kind of cut down from about 20 to I think about a dozen. The French really use spirits, liqueurs, eau de vie, wine, um, brandies in their cakes almost just to elevate flavor. It's really fascinating to me that you can take a kind of very you know, a, a very simple cake, but if you add a tablespoon of cognac, suddenly you you taste it and you get this little haunting of a, of a mm. depth in the background mm. that suddenly can, can really elevate a cake to another level. And it's, it's, again, it's part of that ease. It's so simple. You're just adding a spoonful of something. Yes. But the incredible depth that it gives is, you know, is an exponential add, really. <laughs> and then, you know, I love, I mean, you know, apple cakes will often have a little bit of Calvados apple brandy added to the batter, almost instead often of vanilla or cinnamon, just so that you're accentuating the apple taste and still giving it that kind of that added dimension. Yes. Um, that's, and they use rum. They use dark rum almost as much as they use vanilla. Isn't that and the are- definition of, uh, sorry to interrupt you, of the je ne sais quoi, like the, I can't put my finger on it, but oh man, is that delicious. Yes, and one of my favorites, and this this actually comes from my mother who did this. She would always make Julia Child chocolate mousse with a little bit of Par Williams, oh, and that little bit of pear, pear brandy yes. would just add a, just a, a delicate fragrance to the chocolate mm. that was slightly mysterious and yes. beautiful, and kind of hovered in the background. And you didn't necessarily mm. read it as pear as much as it was almost a kind of aroma. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. I fell in love with. I, I could imagine. Why? Of course. Um, okay. Yo- then, yes, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one other thing, which which is just, again, it's about kind of, you know, knowing what to do at the last minute, I think, is, you know, some of the, some of the like the creme de framboise and the creme de cassis or the creme de pêche are really often used, you know, not only to accentuate the taste of, you know, raspberries or currants or any kind of berries or peaches, whatever it is, but but also, you know, so many times we get home from the market, and this happens less in France than it does necessarily in a supermarket here, but you, you kind of, you come home and your peaches don't taste quite as peachy as you like, or your strawberries are a little bit hard, and and having, having that mm. liqueur, which is almost like an extract, mm-hmm. to boost that flavor mm. um, is sometimes just a... a game saver. That's so smart. That That is a, a chef's secret that you don't hear often, right? That's something you keep in your back pocket. I have to make these strawberries better and I know how. See, mm-hmm. that's, that's just brilliant. The yogurt cake, as you alluded to, is just in its perfect simplicity, right? It's, it's very much to me the definition of the reason you wrote this book. Th- this is the, the basis of gâteau. 
and it's everything I have in my fridge. And I didn't even have to sneak down the hallway for the butter. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's just beautiful in its perfectly simple form. It is, you know, and I, I have to say, even though it is a recipe kids learn in kindergarten, I, I have friends of all ages who just, who make it. And again, they maybe will add a little, a little liquor. Uh, they might drizzle it with something. They might, you know, serve it with a coulis or mm. fresh fruit. But it is the same. And it really is so basic because you, you kind of, you empty a little jar, those little glass or ceramic jars the French sell their yogurt in. You empty that in, you and then you take that same jar and you add two jars of sugar and one jar of a kind of neutral oil and three jars of flour. And so, so kids can really do it. It's, it's really a one, two, three recipe and, um, and three eggs. And so one, two, three, is, one, two, three, you say, I remembered it from last it, night. I read it. I oh woke good. up this morning and I was able to uh, relay it back to myself. One, two, three, one, two, three. There you go. Exactly. One jar yogurt, two jars sugar, three eggs, one jar oil, two teaspoons baking powder, and three jars of flour. And and again, you, you remember that, and suddenly you have people coming to dinner, and you can just do it. It's, yeah. it's so simple. And you don't need anything. It's really, you know, you whisk it in one bowl, and then you pour it into a pan, and boom, it's done. So it, it couldn't be easier. So smart. It takes less than five minutes to yeah. put together. Yeah, just brilliant. And and the beauty of the simplicity of the French. Can you speak, please speak about a fourth fourth, quatre quatre, right? Uh, yes, French quatre pound quatre cake. It's, yes. It's a French pound cake that is, again, it's a real classic. It's also taught when kids are really young. What is genius about it is it's very similar to a pound cake, Um and and the, the word four fourths obviously imply that you're you're doing that you are you are measuring eggs in their shells and then um, matching that with with flour sugar and butter. But the difference is that the butter is melted, and you you melt the butter and you coat the flour in the melted butter before you add the eggs. And because you're coating the flour in fat, you don't get that formation of gluten from the mm. from the water in the egg whites that you do if you cream, for example, or you add the eggs first. So it's a technique that's often used. I mean, very often butter is used brown because it, that bernoisette does create a, mm. this wonderful kind of nutty flavor. But very often it's just melted and it's added directly to the flour to kind of coat it and to prevent that formation of gluten. And, and that means that your recipe is pretty much fail-proof, right? You're, right. you're never going to get a tough crumb. You're always going to get mm-hmm. that, that tender crumb with almost no effort. And, and with almost no prep, right? So you don't have to go take right. the butter out in advance and bring it to room temperature. <laughs> so you can see it was very late when I did it. And I'm very pleased I did. But this requires no advance effort. And that is a Which testament. I love. Yes, me too. But it's a testament to what you said. The French make it look easy because it is easy. Oh, um, Alexandra is coming over. I think I'll make a pound cake. Oh, okay. You know. Yep. And you don't, and, and I actually do, I, I love that recipe specifically when I, you know, when I don't have time to bring butter to yeah. room temperature. <laughs> yes, of course. And the French actually almost never keep their butter refrigerated, which I also love. They kind of, they keep it in those little jars in a kind of cool place. So it's yes. almost, it's almost always close to room temperature, but absolutely. Smart. Um, will you please tell your Dory Greenspan story? Because it is, 
so heartwarming. And Dory has graced the show, and I too am a huge fan. Um, but you tell the story with such humility, and then such almost like childhood excitement. Like I could feel your thrill upon receipt of her reply. Yes, you know. Well, I I am such a Dory fan. I have to say, I I just I love I love her energy. I love her precision. I love the way she writes. Um, I love her style, her voice. Everything about it has this kind of contagious, fantastic um, excitement to it. And so I was, I had longed to meet her, and obviously our, our lives overlap in many ways, but I finally did meet her at the French consulate, and we sat next to each other, and we were just, we just chatted and chatted and chatted and began a friendship that, that lasted. And when I decided to write this book, you know, despite having grown up in France, I really thought, you know what, I want I want to get Dory's blessing. I don't want to in any way um, feel like I'm stepping on her toes because in my mind she she is the queen of, of yes. all of this. And and I just, I think I needed her approval. <laughs> so I wrote to her and she wrote back immediately and said, you have to write this book. And I burst into tears and <laughs> I felt and that wrote the proposal. Yes. <laughs> and and then the the beauty of it is that while you've tested and retested over a hundred recipes to perfection in this book there are contributions from the greats like Dory where you share this um, Isafan cake, right? And, and yeah. one that is just an essential to anyone's uh, library of, of gâteau. Absolutely. So she did this wonderful book with a, with a French pâtissier, um, Pierre Hermé. And she spent so much time working with him. And, and Pierre was known, you know, for his his incredible macaron. Yes. And and some of them he would add rose to, and sometimes he would add lychee to them. And then one day he created this fantastic combination, which was an ode to the rose of Damascus, the Isfahan. And it is, it's basically, it's, it's rose and rose water and lychee and a little bit of raspberry. And that combination is just We need to take a quick break. When we come back, James Beard award-winning writer Alexandra Crapanzano is here. Don't go away. Welcome back. Oh, we are digging into the beauty of gâteau from Alexandra Crapanzano. And I was delighted to see in all of your recipes almond flour and traditional flour and so many different choices that there is a, a sweet and savory for everyone in this book. As you turn the pages, I, I mean, there's just, there's the next recipe to inspire you. I want to make a burnt caramel chocolate cake, Alexandra. It's so yummy. Oh. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, it is, it is truly fabulous. Uh, you know, burnt caramel, I think just became all the rage all over the world. Yes. You know, I don't know how many years ago. And, uh, and it did in France as well. So this is, this is definitely one of the more contemporary recipes in the book. It is, it's, Burnt caramel is, is, unless it happened by accident, is really a relatively new thing. But uh, but it's delicious. And the French, you know, the French 
tend to make their desserts a little bit less sweet than we do. And I think the reason why is that they they don't want that first sensation of flavor to be sugar. They really want it to be whatever the cake actually stars. So whether that is a fruit or a chocolate or, you know, it could be citrus, it could be could be almonds, right? Mm. They they really want that flavor to to be that first sensation, not sugar. Mm. But when it comes to anything to do with caramel, like all bets are off. <laughs> I mean, they are. This is this is definitely the sweetest cake in the book. And um, and, and isn't is that wonderful? Yes, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I love that you speak to that um, uh, sugar palette. I'll call it uh, because on that same page, and I would I would love for you to educate us. This is something I've always done. Um, I love whipped cream, but I don't like cloyingly sweet whipped cream. And so I've always added a couple of tablespoons of creme fraiche. One, because I think it stabilizes the whipped cream. And two, because I love that slightly tart offset that it gives. And you speak to that, that that an overly sweet gateau like the burnt caramel chocolate cake uh, deserves a less sweet whipped cream. One part creme fraiche, two parts heavy cream, right? Yes, I'm so glad you do that. And I, I and I never actually thought about it as stabilizing, but you're absolutely right. So the French, you know, the French go very light on icing, if there is any icing. There's usually not any icing, but they go very light on, on anything that is um, kind of highly decorative to a very sweet one made at home. And what they really like is that added Tang mm. of creme fraiche, and yes. you know, and creme fraiche is one of those things that even when it's room temperature, because of that tang, it feels a little cool. Um, I don't know why, but it's got that. So you're you're kind of offsetting. Of course, you're offsetting richness with richness, right? So this is France we're talking about. I mean, only in France would you offset the richness of of a you know a chocolate caramel cake with the the richness of creme fraiche. But it actually really works because you do. You do get that little bit of tang um, mm. that cuts right through the mm. sugariness of that caramel, that burnt caramel cake. Yes. <laughs> and I love, I really love mixing it. And depending on how sweet a cake is, I will either make a chantilly with more heavy cream and less whipped cream, or you know, or reverse that. So if I'm making a, a very sweet cake, I will up the creme fraiche portion in the ratio of creme fraiche to heavy, heavy cream, cream when making a whipped cream Very and smart. then the opposite right very smart uh, yeah. but the great thing is is that if you don't have time to whipped cream you can just take a spoonful of creme fraiche and dollop oh. it on a plate and everybody is incredibly happy yes just as good i agree definitely yeah. so we are dishing on gateau set to release the new beautiful prose uh, just an exquisite cookbook from uh, author and Wall Street Journal columnist Alexandra Crapanzano. Please go to Amazon and order your copy now. Uh, this is a beautiful book that is so full of heart. And kudos to you. Uh, it is a gorgeous example of the glorious prose that you have shared with us for many years. And I hope you continue to write. And I hope there's another book in the works. But in the interim, please order your copy, pre-order your copy of Gateau. I believe it is destined to be a New York Times bestseller. This is a James Beard award-winning author. And uh, as you've heard, uh, a woman who is sharing and divulging every secret with absolute intense passion. Gateau includes cakes for birthdays and summer feasts and winter holidays and the last-minute dinner party that the French can pull off 
uh, seamlessly, of course, from superstar Parisian bakers and guest contributors to the over 100 recipes that Alexandra Crapanzano herself tested and retested to fill your kitchen with something beautiful. These are practical, simple, beautiful recipes rigorously tested, and the book is destined to become a classic. Get your copy. Gateau, G-A-T-E-A-U, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes, Alexandra Crapanzano, the author. And please follow on social at Alexandra Crapanzano because you never know. Alexandra, I know that you will post a recipe at some point soon that will not just have two ingredients and one line of introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will, I will not do that to anybody. <laughs> We know you wouldn't. Um, I am delighted to have had the opportunity to dish with you. Thank you for sharing your passion um, and continued success to you. Your book will, um, will I hope proudly, but I'll tell you, I will do all I can to make you proud, um, will stand Thank tall you. in my kitchen. Oh, that is wonderful to hear. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. And I hope that you sharpened your baking skills and that we pleased your palate and that you'll tune in every weekend where there is uh, guaranteed lots more informative, entertaining, and delicious, at least I hope you think so, conversation to be had. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for this hour. Uh, Let's see. I'm on a steak kick. Yes, a grilled steak kick. And there is a lot left over. And so come Tuesday, for Taco Tuesday, I thought I'd tell you what I'm making. It's a ribeye taco with horseradish cream, but it's the horseradish cream that makes it. Oh, yeah. Very simply, if you have some, uh, let's say, jar of horseradish, creamed horseradish, uh, fresh horseradish root anywhere in your fridge, a container of sour cream or even yogurt will do, a splash of white wine vinegar, lots of of freshly ground black pepper, and you have a horseradish cream sauce. I like a corn relish with green onions and diced green chilies and freshly grated lime peel. And then, of course, some little corn tortillas and that really thinly sliced leftover ribeye steak. So good. I'm posting a recipe that I hope you will drool over on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend when we can eat and drink and have merriment together. (laughs) I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. (music) 